Well, good morning to you all, and thank you so much for being here today. Take your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7 today, Exodus chapter 7, and uh, I am looking forward to sharing this message with you. Exodus chapter 7, we're going to start in verse number 1, we're just going to read a few passages of Scripture. I'm going to preach from Exodus chapter 7 through Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read the entire five chapters together. And then I'm going to preach, and you're going to get out of here around 2 o'clock this afternoon. So, just kidding. Um, but stand with me. Let's read a little bit of Scripture, all right? Exodus 7, starting at verse 1, and reading down to verse number 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, By the way, the verse right before that in chapter 6, verse 30, the, Moses says to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? That's kind of a, just where we left off last Sunday. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just what the Lord commanded them. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. And so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just what the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. And Pharaoh then summoned wise men, sorcerers, and Egyptian magicians, and also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one of threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed, him up, swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Father, thank you for your word today. Speak to us, I pray. We need to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Today, the scripture also says over in Hebrews chapter 13, 3, verse 15, it says, Today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, not tomorrow, not yesterday, but if today you hear the voice of God, do not harden your hearts. How many of you in the room have ever been stubborn? Any, stubborns, any stubborn people in the room? I mean, is there any stubborn people by nature? You're just a stubborn person, you know? 
Jane and I, we had three amazing children. And I think each of them in their, you know, Weston's now 28, you know, Patrick's 25 and Kristen's 24. All three of them had their moments of being stubborn, you know, of wanting their own way. And, um, and I, you know, I thought that we, we did pretty well after Weston. Weston was an easy baby. He kind of did whatever he was supposed to do. He was always compliant. I said, man, this parenting thing is no big deal. And then Patrick came along. And, um, and Patrick was, was a whole different animal. Let me just tell you right now. I mean, he screamed in the car from all the way from South Weymouth, Massachusetts, down to, to New Jersey one day. And he cried the whole time. He would not stop. Not because he needed anything, just because he was miserable and he wanted to make everybody else miserable. And, um, and thankfully, I wasn't in the car then. Jane was. <laughs> she was driving, and Grandma was in the other seat, and they were trying to. It really didn't work out too well. Do you remember that trip, Janie? You certainly do, don't you? Well, then Kristen comes along. And, you know, little old Kristen, this beautiful little girl, she was just, she was just precious and, you know, had this beautiful blonde hair and this wonderful eyes. And let me tell you, she was the most stubborn of all three of them. And she demonstrated that all throughout her childhood and into her adolescence and even into her, her young adult life. I have discovered what Kristen wants, she's going to get. And she's not going to budge one ounce one way or the other. Now, she's a lot like her mother. No, just kidding. <laughs> she's a lot like both of us, but she's worse than both of us. But she's just a stubborn kind of girl, you know? And I was thinking about this idea of stubbornness. You know, sometimes we are stubborn towards not only wanting our own way and trying to push against parental oversight and push against, you know, um, somebody who has authority in your life. But ultimately, sometimes we are stubborn against God. We push against him. We don't want to yield to his will and his ways. And when we do that, we do what this scripture says we should not do. We harden our hearts. We become, we become resistant to his spirit, to his love, to his grace, to his will in our lives because we want to do our own thing. And so we look like this. Doesn't that look familiar? Some of you might have that disposition here this morning. You might be here in church and you have a, you have a disposition, a heart that is, that is hard towards God. You might find yourself here because somebody asked you to come or because you feel obligated to come or whatever it might be. But you might find yourself, you might be online right now and you have a heart that is stubborn. Stubborn means resolute, obstinately unmoving. That's what it means. To be obstinately unmoving. And sometimes on this journey of freedom that we've been looking at in the book of Exodus, we find that we resist God's provision that is right there before us. We resist his ways. We resist his, his will. We resist, we try to do it our way instead of doing it God's way. Because we think we know better than God. We think we are wiser than him, smarter than him. And if we don't think we're wiser or smarter than him, we say, so what? I'm still going to do it my own way. 
And that is a stubborn spirit. What we find here in the book of Exodus in the next few chapters is the most outrageous example of stubborn, obstinate, hard-hearted that you find anywhere in Scripture. It is here that you discover that Pharaoh, remember Pharaoh means the great house. It represents the leader of Egypt. And he is hard towards God. God has been speaking to him. And he said last week, he said, who is he? I don't know him. I don't know whose God you're worshiping. And I wouldn't listen to him even if I did know who he was. And so he's very upfront. And God says, ultimately, he says to, said to Pharaoh, you're going to know who I am. And you're going to come to the place where you recognize me. And by the way, that is true for every single human being on the face of the earth. Because you know what the scripture says? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And could I just say, it's better to make that confession on this side of eternity than the next one. It's better to yield your life to his will in his way. And so there are four recurring themes in this section of scripture that I want to address today. I really, really want to address the fourth one. There are four of them. I'm going to give them to you. But I want to spend the majority of my time, which is limited this morning, on the fourth one. Which is part of my introduction here of stubbornness, hard-heartedness. But here in Exodus chapter 7, starting in Exodus chapter last week we looked at the big showdown. It was like the first quarter of the Super Bowl. But now we're moving into the second quarter, third quarter, and ultimately we're going to be in the fourth quarter and the last minute of the game. And guess who's going to win this showdown? God is. He's going to have the last word, and he's going to win. But we're going to find in, this, in these chapters of chapter 7 through 12 where, where God brings his judgment upon the nation of Israel, I mean the nation of Egypt, and he begins to put pressure on Pharaoh to let his people go. For those of you who are new in the room, this is the fourth message of our series in Exodus so far. And we've already looked at that the nation of Israel are being oppressed that they are God's people there, they are the Hebrews, and they are being used as a slave force, an economic engine to build roads and buildings and pyramids and, and all of these things. And, but he is a slave master. He has put so much pressure on the people that the people begin to cry out to God. And it is the concern of the hearts of the people of God that moves God to action. He calls Moses from a burning bush. And he says, Moses, Moses, don't come any closer. I'm calling you to go to Pharaoh to let my people go. And as you know, Moses is that reluctant, reluctant, that reluctant leader. He was having his fine life being a shepherd, doing his own thing. God interrupts his life and says, you're the man. You're the man that I'm going to use. And he has all the excuses in the world of why he shouldn't do it. And ultimately, God says, has an answer to every single excuse. And he goes with courage to the, the Israelites. And he says to them last week, he says, he says, basically, listen, I want to tell you what all God said to me and what he did. And he performs those miracles of the staff becoming a snake and his hand, remember, being stuck in his cloak and coming out. He performs that. And the people are like, finally, God's going to do something. 
And they obey and they go to Pharaoh and he tells them to let my people go. And God, instead of Pharaoh letting the people go, what does Pharaoh do? He puts more pressure on the people. He oppresses them more. He actually keeps the same quota of the number of bricks they had to make, but he doesn't give them the supplies to do it. They have to go collect it on their own. And Moses says to God, basically in the end, the Israelites turn on Moses and Aaron and says, hey, you made things worse. What are you talking about? Where is God? And Moses then goes to God and says, ha, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm a man of faltering lips. The Israelites won't listen to me. Why is Pharaoh going to listen to me? And this is where God begins to speak. And God reaffirms again what he expects. The first thing God expects is that Moses and Aaron must trust and obey God. And can I just say to you again, if you're in a place where things are getting worse than getting better, because you are trusting God and obey God, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't, don't throw in the towel. It's only the first quarter of the game. The war is not over yet. And God is at work in your life, even though you may not see it. Didn't we hear that in the song? He is at work. And he is working even when you don't know it. So the Lord said to Moses, see, I've made, I've made you like God to Pharaoh. Now catch this. This is different than any other time now. Because God now says to Moses, listen, Moses, just so you can be clear about this, I am actually going to make you like a deity before Pharaoh. What you say is actually coming from me, but he doesn't believe in me, but he's going to believe in me because I'm going to use you as if you were God himself. And then he says to him, your brother Aaron, who was the one who was speaking on his behalf, which was one of the excuses that he said, I can't use any words. I'm not very good talking in front of people. He says, well, I'm going to let Aaron do the talking. He is going to become your prophet. And so all of a sudden now, it's like God says, I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you supernatural power to carry out my mission because you can't do it in your own strength. I am going to work in your life. All you need to do is trust me and obey me. Trust me and obey me. You must keep going. And so now we're going to discover that he's not going to have just one encounter with Pharaoh. He's actually going to have to go before Pharaoh, not one, two, but over ten different times. And he's going to have to say these words to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Let my people go. And there will be times in this, in this battle with all of the plagues where, where it looks like Pharaoh relents. And then he turns and he's stubborn again. Even times where he was, he was saying, okay, okay, enough, enough. Moses, please pray for me because I know that you have power to some divine being. He says, would you pray for me because this pain is too great. Would you bring relief in my life? And Moses even prays for Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh turns. But Moses has to trust and obey and that's what, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, remember now, he's not performed any miracles before Pharaoh to this point. 
He's performed miracles before the Israelites, but not before Pharaoh. So Pharaoh basically says, hey, you've got some divine being, some God that you think is so amazing. Well, perform some miracle in front of me and show me he's your God. Where is he? He's so powerful. You've told me to let the people go. Well, perform a miracle. And then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it to the ground, and Pharaoh, it will become a snake. So, so what is Moses and Aaron? They went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Now hold on to that thought, because the second recurring theme here is all about a snake. The snake, by the way, is an Egyptian goddess. This was a powerful force. And so this is, by the way, this is a picture of an Egyptian cobra. Realistic here. And we're talking ancient times. We're not talking about massive armies with nuclear weapons and stuff like that. Although, in many ways, Putin is a pharaoh. He's nothing more than a thug. And there have been thugs that have gone on down through the last hundred years. You can think about uh, Gaddafi. You can think about um, 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 Saddam Hussein. I mean, you can think about Putin. You can think about, you know, the, the, who is the uh, uh, Osama bin Laden. I mean, there's all kinds of thugs out there who are doing evil things, who have obstinate evil intentions, and who are pushing against the forces of right and God and righteousness and doing wrong things, even though sometimes the world rallies against them. And today, right now, we have, we have another snake in our midst who is doing evil things. And this is the picture of what a snake is all about. And so God begins to demonstrate that he is greater than the snakes. He is greater than the snakes in your life. And this is a second recurring theme. God has superior power over every false deity or idol. Snakes captivated the Egyptians. Pharaoh, if you didn't know this, wore one on his head as a symbol of his authority, and he was to be feared like snakes were feared. They were so awestruck by the snakes that it led them to serpent worship. The Egyptians reportedly built a temple in honor of the snake goddess, Wadik, who was a representative of, a, of the cobra. And so what you discover here is that, that God says, okay, you think your snake is the most powerful God in your universe. I'll show you a bigger and better snake. Watch this. And he uses the snake as a, as a symbol, uh, performing a miracle in front of him. He takes a staff and throws it down, and it becomes a snake. And he goes over, and he picks it up, and it becomes a staff again. In other words, he says, your snakes are smaller than my snakes. I am able to beat you at your own game. And so this whole showdown that's going on is not only a showdown of flesh, this is a showdown of spirituality, of the forces of darkness that is happening here. Because every plague is also connected to a particular God that was in Egypt. And God was saying to you, there is no God that's greater than me. There is no God that's greater than me. There is no God greater than me. 
And that was the theme of all of Exodus. Because at the end of the plagues, he not only didn't even want to set the nation of Israel free from bondage, he wanted the Egyptians and the Israelites and the rest of the known world that he was the one true living God. And he was superior. And my friends, our world today does not recognize God. We live in a pluralistic world where all of a sudden God is reduced down to whatever other gods we have. You got that God and you got this God and that God. And although we don't worship snakes and we don't worship gnats and we don't worship the God of the rivers and the gods of the skies, there's all kinds of gods in our world today. And people want to say, you worship your God and I'll worship my God, but our gods are equal. No, they're not. There is only one true God, and he has made himself known originally as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's the God of Moses, and he's going to show the, the, the world at that time that they were not able to even compete with how great he was. And so he's superior Notice in back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it was the serpent, the snake, was more crafty than the wild animals the Lord God had made. The snake, by the way, all throughout Scripture is a symbol of Satan. It's a symbol of darkness. It's a symbol of evil. And you'll find those themes all the way. He's slicky. He's sly. He's, he's maneuvering. He's, he's conniving. He's a liar. He's a cheat. And what the devil comes to you and does is he constantly comes into your life and gives you an alternative reality. An alternative set of facts that are not true. And he will begin to speak into your life. That's what he did with Eve and Adam in the garden when he said, did God really say that? Yes, he did. But he just twists it all so slightly. I love it says in Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was hurled down that the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. In other words, in the end of the book of Revelation, the serpent, the devil, is finally defeated and done. God is superior. Here's the third theme. Counterfeit signs and wonders. You will find as you read through the chapters 7 through 12 of the story of the plagues is that there is a counterfeit that's going on. And right here in chapter 7, which is a foreshadowing of the next five chapters of the, of the, of the book, Pharaoh then summoned, who did he summon? The wise men, the sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians. I mean, here is, here is Moses and Aaron. They perform a miracle before him. And Pharaoh says, oh yeah? Well, I got somebody who can do the same thing you just did. Got the same thing. I'll compete with you. And so he called them. The Egyptians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. Now, I don't know. Have you ever seen snake handlers? I mean, they, even today, there are people who are snake handlers. 
When I was growing up in the city of Boston, they would have at Faneuil Hall, this is a, a, a wonderful place, a lot of tourists, and they would, they would set up a, you know, a little shop and the guy would be out there with this huge snake and he would just be rolling around and be like, whoa, that's weird and freaky. You know, Part of what they did back then is they actually took a snake and they paralyzed it. And when they paralyzed it, it became stiff like a stick. And this was a common practice during that day and time. And so, so they, were, they were demonstrating. They were having these competing wars that were going on. But I love what it says. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. In other words, those counterfeits will not win. And we have a lot of counterfeits today. We have a lot of counterfeit gods competing with the true God. We have the counterfeit God of entertainment, the counterfeit God of money. We've got the counterfeit Todd of Hollywood. We've got the counterfeit Todd of, of, of just, you know, go out and worship the trees. Be a, be a naturalist. Find your God wherever you want. But God says, no, I am the true and living God, and he's going to demonstrate this over and over again. By the way, these wise men, sorcerers, and Egyptians, they actually get in chapter 8, after one of the plagues, they actually get to the place where they say to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, we can't do that. That's not possible for us to do. That must be, and here's what they describe it, the finger of God. The finger of God. In chapter 8, verse 17, you can find that verse. And they realize, oh Lord, you're bigger and more superior. Well, there's one more theme that you'll find, and this is the fourth one, which I want to spend the most time. But before I get there, I'll remind you, the scripture tells us in Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. My friends, I'm not a big, like, you know, seeing the devil behind everything in life. I'm not, I'm not that kind of guy, okay? Actually, I don't like to give the devil any attention, you know? Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. God is stronger and bigger. But I also recognize that there are spiritual forces that are happening in our world right now. There are things that are going on behind the scenes that you cannot see with your own eyes that are happening that are causing events, causing conflict, causing division. There is, a, there is an evil force at work that is seeking to destroy you and everything good and right and pure. And we know that because we see the effects of it. And that's why it's important for us in, in Ephesians, he talks about put on the whole armor of God, you know? Put on the belt of truth. Put on the, the shield of, of righteousness. Have the word of God and prayer and be in prayer because sometimes the work that you do that you can't see is done by praying and seeking him and asking God to do great things. 
And this is so clear in this cosmic reality between good and evil that's going on, like two Westerners fighting each other, like two football teams on a field, or two nations destroying each other, whatever it might be, whatever image you want to have. Ultimately, God was at work to destroy the enemies of darkness. And he wants to do the same thing for you as well. So recognize you're not wrestling with flesh and blood all the time. Sometimes you think you're in conflict with a person and you're really not. There's something behind it the gut that is seeking to destroy you. All right, number four, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. I want you to, this is so important for you to see today. He, all the way throughout the scripture that, that you'll read in chapter 7, if you haven't had time to read it, I would pray that you'd go home and read chapter 7 through 12 and look at the plagues once again. But you'll notice that he says here in chapter 7, 3 through 5, which is a precursor to what's going to happen. In other words, he's having this discussion to Moses. and said, Moses, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to do it. Here's the counterfeit reality that's going to happen. Here are the signs and wonders that are going to go on. And here's how Pharaoh is going to respond to what I want to do in his life. And he says here, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and, will, and with mighty acts of judgment. What are the judgments? The judgments are the ten plagues. That's the judgment of God. I will lay my mighty acts of judgment and I will bring my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. And so God says, you know what? Game on. He won't listen to you. He has been, he has been asked nicely. He has been asked straightforward, let the people go. He asked him the first time, just let him go for three days. Let him go worship for three days. They'll come back. He's now said, let him out of the country. Let him be free. And he's performed miracles in front of him. He's done all the right things, but the word of God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will not listen to me. Now, as you look at that scripture, one of the things you, you might ask is, well, was it Pharaoh's fault or was it God's fault? I mean, it says God hardened his heart. So if God hardens his heart, he set him up to resist. But there is, a, there is, a, there is an underlying theme here that's going on. The underlying theme was his heart was already bent away from God. He did not believe in God. He was stubborn towards God. He thought he was divine. He thought he was the king of the universe. He thought he was all powerful. And the more you think that way, the more stubborn you become towards God's grace. And it becomes almost like a, a prophecy in your own life that becomes a reality. And he says, I am going to, I'm going to make his heart more stubborn because he continues to resist. Every time I move, he resists me. And you'll see that in the plagues. Now, 
The hardening, I love what this writer says, and I put this in your notes this morning. I want to read it to you because I think it's important for you to understand. The hardening of people's hearts by God is a way of punishment, but it is always a consequence of their own self-hardening. Catch that. It's always a consequence of their own self-hardening. In Pharaoh's case, we read that he hardened his heart against the appeal to free the Israelites. Hardening himself, he became more confirmed in his obstinacy till he brought the final doom upon himself. Sin is made to become its own punishment. This reminds me, by the way, if you have your Bibles, go over to the book of Romans chapter 1. And if you look at Romans chapter 1, starting in verse number 18, you will discover that Romans, it says this. We did this in our Romans series last year, but here's what it says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who what? Suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's visible, invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood by what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And I love what he goes on to say here. For although they knew God, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools as they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, catch this, since man, what is known about God is plain and visible, just look at his creation, just look at the wonders that God has done, what is known about God is plain, and although they have been given some light, they resist that light. They resist that truth. They suppress it. They actually believe the alternative, the counterfeits, the lies, greater than the truth. And they, instead of worshiping God, they worship man. They worship mortals. They worship what you can see, touch, and feel. They worship the creation instead of the creator. And what does Romans say? Therefore, God gave them over. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual immorality, to degrading of their bodies with one another. In other words, God says, you know what? If you want that, I'm going to give it to you, all of it to you. You're going to have it all. And basically the plagues are nothing more than God saying to, the, to Egypt and all their gods, you want, you want to worship those gods? You want to worship how great they are? I'm going to give them to you in abundance. You're going to get a, not a few frogs, but a lot of frogs. You're not going to get a few gnats. You're going to get a ton of gnats. You're not going to get a few bulls. You're going to have bulls all over your body and all over your animals. I'm going to let the natural forces of my creation and your gods, and you're going to have it to the nth degree, to the place where you're going to say, please stop. His judgments were going to be poured out. He was handed them over. And so when you 
harden your heart against God's voice. When you say no to God, or you say wait, or you say not now, what you are doing is you are self-hardening your own heart, and you are also, if you continue down that road, hardening to the place where you no longer can hear the voice of God anymore. You can no longer respond anymore because you are so far from God, you can't hear him anymore. And that's exactly what happens. Now, in Hebrew religious thought, which is what the Old Testament is written in, everything was directly attributed to God. And that's why you find a lot of times in the Old Testament, God did this and God did this and God did this. Almost like God is doing evil. Because they attributed that to, to like, again. And the hardening is God's work. But it is always the consequence of human action out of harmony with God's will. And that is demonstrated for us in the totality of Scripture. Romans is an example of that. So here's my question to you. Is your heart hard? Is your heart hard? If you look at these plagues, and I gave you a diagram in your notes this morning, you should pick up the notes. You should keep notes. You'd make your pastor happy. I take time to print them for you. We even print them in color, which costs us about seven cents a sheet. I even send it in the email to you. Just saying. But you'll notice each of these. And I, I think it's interesting that as you read down through, for example, the blood. Pharaoh does not let the Israelites go. There's a pattern to the judgments. Moses comes and says, let the people go. If you don't let the people go, here's what's going to happen. He, Pharaoh doesn't listen, so then the judgment comes. And then at the end of the judgment, he finally says, no, I'm not going to let the people go. But you'll notice at different times it says, for example, after the frogs, Pharaoh promises to let the Israelites go, but changes his mind. I don't know about you, but frogs are gross. Can you imagine frogs in your house? Frogs all over your counters? In your bed? All over your pool? In your backyard? Around your car? I mean, the only thing I can think of is when I was living in Maryland, every seven years they have what is called the cicadas come out. And there's these little bugs that come up out of the ground and there are millions of them everywhere for about six weeks in Maryland. And the first time I experienced this, I was like, Gene, we got to sell the house and we're moving. This is absolutely disgusting. I remember going out to the bus stop to wait for the kids to go on the bus and the bugs are flying around. They're leaning on you and these bugs, they're all over the house. They're everywhere. There were so many of them that after they all died, we actually stunk so bad. We actually had to like take, take rakes and shovels and put them in piles and put them in bags and throw them in the trash. That's how bad it is. You live in paradise, by the way. <laughs> but when I think of frogs, gnats, Pharaoh does not let the Israelites go after the gnats. It says in the flies, it says Pharaoh promises to let the Israelites go. In other words, here's what happens to a hard heart. A hard heart will, 
will say that they will obey for relief. Catch that. They want relief from the pain, and then they go right back to their old ways. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I won't do it again. I promise, I promise, I promise. Please stop this pain. It hurts too much. Then when it stops, they don't acknowledge God. They don't relinquish, and they go right back to their old ways. Pharaoh promises to let the Israelites go, but changes his mind. It says, Pharaoh does not let the Israelites go. It says, but Pharaoh does not let the Israelites go. In the hail, it says, Pharaoh asked for forgiveness. He actually asked for forgiveness and promises to let the Israelites go, but changes his mind. Pharaoh asked for forgiveness after the locust, but does not let the Israelites go. So he's saying, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. If you want real freedom, it's not about just being sorry for one particular action. There must be a complete surrender and acknowledgement that he is God and you're not. And Pharaoh never wanted to do that. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Worship team, come, would you? I got a lot more to say, but I got time is out, so oh well. I'd like to just sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Could you do that for us? Just that little portion. And um, let's stand together. Maybe you're here today and you say, Lord, I know my heart's not really where it needs to be today. I know my heart's maybe bending in the wrong direction. And today I need to turn my heart and my life towards Jesus. Look full into his wonderful ways. Would you just, um, if God's spoken to you today and you need to pray, why don't you just come and make your way to the altar and ask him to help you to trust and obey like Moses and Aaron, not to listen to the false gods of today, but see that he is greater and stronger than everything that you could face. God, help us today, I pray right now. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.